Turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 4. We're going to continue our adventure uh, in learning about and understanding who King Jesus is. And uh, so this morning I want us to sort of just jump right in uh, to one of my favorite passages to preach. Sometimes I tell you that this is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. That doesn't necessarily mean that I love to teach it. Uh, Some of them are very difficult and confusing and have lots of questions. And a lot of the time those are the passages that I like. Uh, but from a preaching perspective, I had an Old Testament professor, Dr. John Currid, uh, whom I love dearly, and he's still teaching over in North Carolina now. He moved from uh, the Jackson campus of Reformed Theological Seminary to uh, out, out in North Carolina. But um, he's a phenomenal scholar and a language professor and student of the Old Testament, and he used to tell us when he gets something really good, he'd say, now, now guys, that'll preach, you know. And uh, this is just one of those passages. It's probably the most familiar story. I mean, that's hard to say, but it is certainly one of the most familiar stories in all of the, uh, all of the Bible, especially in the life of Christ um, and his ministry. Uh, sadly, however, it is also one of the most widely, I think, misunderstood or abused passages. So we're going to do what we can to jump right into it this morning uh, and see what it teaches us about who Christ is and how that applies to our hearts uh, correctly. So Mark chapter 4, we're going to read verses 35 to 41, so a brief passage this morning. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, um, as we love and wonder and open our hearts to you this morning, we, we pray that you would answer us, that, that you would draw near to us, that you would meet with us, that you would Lord, open our hearts, our ears, our eyes, that you would give us vision that we do not have, that you would give us listening and hearing that we uh, cannot hope for from ourselves. Lord, that you would grant us understanding from your holy word. Lord, we want to be changed by your truth. We want to be transformed by the gospel. We want to be given hope and joy in our salvation, and we want to be driven to trust you. And we pray today uh, from your word that you would feed us and and that we would be full of hope and joy and trust in you. Uh, So as we study now, be, be honored and glorified by, by what we do and what we study and what we think and say, but, but help us to do it in a way that brings, your, brings about your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 4. Let's begin reading in verse 35. It says, On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now remember there on the Sea of Galilee, he had gotten into a boat to address the crowds upon the shore. Okay? So he had gotten into the boat with his disciples. We saw that uh, the last time or two. And so it's on that same day on the Sea of Galilee, he says to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude that they were teaching, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Or or literally little faith. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? So the very familiar, uh, famous story about Christ in a boat upon the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, uh, and the storm is raging, and Jesus 
The master of the storm, he calms the sea. And so we've been on this journey, uh, this adventure, if you will, of trying to understand who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And sort of in short, what we know to this point is that he came proclaiming uh, repentance that the kingdom of God had come. And, and, And he not only claimed that the kingdom had come, but that he was the one who brought the kingdom and that he was, in fact, the king of the kingdom. So if you wanted to summarize in very short fashion what we've done over uh, a very long number of weeks, th- that's it. He, he is making these claims to be the fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament, to be the Messiah of his chosen people, to, to be the redeemer of sinful men, that, that he has come bringing and inaugurating the kingdom of God, that it is here, that the time is now, and that he is the king of the kingdom. And so what we saw last time is, well, in the last couple of times, is that he's been teaching about the nature of the kingdom. Remember we talked about how we get into the kingdom? Remember, listening is the primary skill of the kingdom, that, that, that we must hear and listen and take heed when he gives us ears to hear. Let him who has ears to hear, hear. Uh, so let us be careful how we listen. And then secondly, we saw things about the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom, what sort of kingdom it is, that it's this far-reaching, universal kingdom and gospel that is to be spread to the far ends of the earth. And so we've seen about the kingdom. But I love this story because in this very brief few verses at the end of this passage, uh, he moves from telling us all about the kingdom, and we love to think about the kingdom of God. Um, We find great hope, don't we, and joy and satisfaction in studying about the kingdom, that, that we live in God's kingdom and we are a part of the kingdom. And that though it is not completely here, it is here, and it is real, and it is now, and, and we are looking forward to the day that it is coming in its fullness and in its completion. But let me tell you something. He moves from that, the nature of the kingdom, to today, the nature of the king. And, and let me tell you this. Whatever hope and, and, and joy and satisfaction we find in the nature of the kingdom and in studying and thinking about God's kingdom, and it is good, there is far more to be found in studying and thinking about the nature of the king of the kingdom. There is way more hope and way more satisfaction and way more joy and persevering faith to be found in studying about the king. For without the king, the kingdom does not exist. And so he is the hub around which all of these uh, things revolve. And so I'm excited this morning that in this brief old passage, we're going to learn something about uh, the nature then of the king. And and this is, you know, th- th- this is extremely important because, you know, as I said last time, they, they were his disciples, the multitudes, the, the people at large, especially those that followed him. They were very concerned because they did not see his kingdom. They could not feel safety and security. They did not, you know, see him on his throne. They did not see him on a white horse. He did not come with a crown. He was not stamping out their enemies. So so they were struggling with this issue of unbelief. And so it's not it's not only good that he teaches them about the kingdom, but that he shows them that even if they can't see his crown, that he is indeed the king. And guys, let me tell you that's that may be where you are this morning, struggling with unbelief. Struggling with unbelief. That, that, that you look around the, 
the circumstances of your own life and of your own culture and of your own sort of little pool that you swim in and and you don't see the kingdom of God marching forward and progressing and moving and building and you don't feel safety and security and you can't see Jesus' crown on a daily basis and he's not holding his scepter and you struggle to think, man, are you really the king? And you're struggling with unbelief. Listen, there is no greater passage for you than this morning and for all of our hearts as we struggle in the midst of the storms of life and with our unbelief than to study about the king, to learn that he is indeed the king even when we can't, even when we can't tell. So let's, we're going to think about this in three ways. Three attributes uh, or all of the attributes maybe that are presented here. We're going to organize it in three ways. First, that he is a compassionate king. Second, that he is a dangerous king. And third, that he is a sovereign king. And so we're going to consider all those three things together. First, he is a compassionate king. Let's think about the sort of maybe seemingly trivial details about this passage. It's packed full of them. Uh, We read then at the beginning that it says on the same day, and I I told you about that, that's the day when the multitudes have gathered this long stretch of ministry where he's been healing, he's been in controversy with the religious leaders, he's been rebuking them and teaching his disciples. He has been on this marathon ministry trip or streak, if you will, and it says on that same day it continues. They're on the Sea of Galilee, they've gotten into this boat, And it says that he tells them, let us cross over to the other side. So they left the multitude. They took him along in the boat as he was. A lot of people wonder what that is. That simply means they didn't get out of that boat and onto another boat. Or they didn't, he didn't go from where he was. He was already in the boat teaching. So they just took him as he was over to the other side like he commanded them to do. Now notice also here that in this, it's very important that we see that he did not simply suggest that it would be a good idea if they cross over to this other side of the Sea of Galilee. He gives them this imperative, let us cross over. Uh, we are crossing over, boys. And so ready the ship and uh, ready yourselves. Let's go. So let us cross over. They take him. They leave the multitude. They take him as he is. And then evidently there's all of these other little boats that come with them, that follow them. Uh, The multitude was not going to be left behind, I don't guess. And those that were able and those that had capacity, they jump in little ships and skiffs and boats and they head out to continue to follow this guy Jesus and to learn about his teaching and to see what it is that he has to say. Um, And a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. So this storm then comes up. And it is a terrible storm. We're going to think about that. and We'll look a little bit more deeply at that in just a few moments. But then there's this, this bit about Jesus. He was asleep in the stern. And I, it gives us on a pillow. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not 100% sure why we're giving that detail. But he's, he's conked out. He's on a pillow. One of, the, one of the first questions is, what in the world was Jesus doing? And so many people want to point to this that, you know, uh, it, it's just all about his... You know, he, he wasn't fearful and he wasn't fretful and he just had all this confidence. Guys, he was God. Of course he wasn't fearful or fretful. I mean, that, that seems sort of superfluous to me in this passage. It seems to be a little bit uh, redundant or it doesn't, it's not helpful, I guess you'd say, to say, well, he wasn't fearful or fretful. I mean, duh, he, he was God. I mean, you know, just as, just as he claimed, remember with the religious leaders, that they said, who, who can forgive sins but God? And he says, uh, son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> I am God, right? And he, he, was, he was well aware of his godness. And in many ways, this passage is going to give to us the nature of the king primarily is this dichotomy that he is human and God. 
But it is man and God. They are united, but not mixed. They are together, right? But they are not confused. They are completely whole and completely one and then completely two. It's a great mystery. I don't completely understand it, and you don't either. But he knew he was God, so he wasn't fretful. I think the question then is, why in the world was he sleeping in the midst of such a great storm when everybody else was freaking out? Guys, I think the reason is because of his humanity. Guess what? He was exhausted. I mean, we have seen this marathon. Jesus, from one account to the other, from one event to the other, most of us would have already said, I am done. You know, stick a fork in me and find me a bed and a pillow. I'm, I'm, I'm finished. I need to rest. I need to, to bring restoration to my body, my physical body. Guys, what a beautiful picture of the humanity of Jesus that he is so exhausted humanly, physically, just like we get, that he gets onto the boat and the first thing he does is he looks for a place to rest. And he is in such a deep sleep that the storm cannot arouse him. Listen, there's another attribute, and I know this is talking about and is alluding to and is pointing us to think and consider his humanity because of the second attribute of the, the little details of this passage. Look at what it says. He was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. In other words, not bothered. The, the storm was not sufficient to move him. But look at the next part. And they awoke him and said to him, And then look at 39. Then he arose. Now this is important. Listen. It's it's alluding to and helping us to, to think and focus upon his humanity that he was exhausted in part because it wants us to see that his his full humanity, his leaving heaven and coming to earth and becoming a man is so he can relate to men so that he can stand in their place so that he can save them. Look. The storm did not move Jesus, but the concerns and the pleas of men did. And they're not just any men, they're his men. Don't miss that little detail. It's one of the most beautiful and important aspects to this passage. That the the circumstances of life do not get Jesus' blood flow going, humanly speaking. But the cries of his children definitely do. It's why he became a man. And in his humanity, he gives us this great expression of his compassion as the king. So many kings, and this is such a this is such a odd picture because most kings are lots of things. Compassionate for their people in the in their kingdom is not one of them. They're usually tyrants. They're usually full of themselves. They usually do not have time to concern themselves with the basic trivial needs of the suffering and crying people that are in their kingdom. They typically do whatever is necessary, whatever little bit will get them by to get, you know, to to stay in favor with the leaders of the day so that they'll throw a fish here or give a drink there or provide some legal help there in some area of their kingdom, but they really do not care. And what I want you to see is that most first in this passage, Jesus is presented to us as the king of the kingdom who is deeply moved by the people in the kingdom. It's an an unbelievable picture. I think secondly, this compassion, though, think about this. He's giving them in this story then compassion, 
What have they been struggling with? They've been struggling with belief. They've been struggling with trust. They look around and they don't see, just like we do, they don't feel the kingdom. They don't see his crown. He's not on his throne and they're struggling to trust and to believe him. First, he's compassionate because we see clearly that he is not moved by the storm. He is exhausted. He is human. But he is deeply moved by the pleas of his people. But then secondly, I see great compassion in what he does because he jumps up out of the storm in the midst of their struggle and he does just what they need to believe. He could have delivered them any way that he wanted. He didn't have to calm the storm. He could have just kept them safe in the midst of the storm. But they're terrified in the storm. And what does Jesus do? He displays this miraculous, unbelievable, creative, instantaneous power as God Almighty. Why? To bolster them and to give them just a tiny glimpse of the kingdom he's been teaching them about. Do you see that? How, how compassionate God is that in our weakest Moments of unbelief. If we will but plea with him and, and cry out to him, even in our weak moments of faithlessness, he will often give us what we need to believe in our humanity. He is compassionate. He is moved by the cries of his people. He gives them a glimpse of his power and authority and a glimpse and a sense of the kingdom that he has been teaching them about and promising them that is to come. I would simply ask you this morning then, do you really think that he does not care? I mean, just in light of just the very beginning and the, the, the minor details of this story. Listen, I, I've preached so many funerals. Some of you in this room can attest to. I have preached funerals for your families. I've preached funerals for my own. One of the things that I almost always allude to is what is, is I, I ask people, I post people with the question in funerals, as they are sitting in, in moments of grief and despair and the storm in their life is raging, I, I, I help them to understand, what is the temptation? What is the temptation in any storm in life, in any difficulty, in any problem? It, the temptation is to think that God has forgotten you. That God is not with you. That God's not paying attention. It is the temptation of unbelief. To wonder, God, where are you and what are you doing? And I would simply pose the question to you this morning. When you see a king, who, by the way, how did they get in the storm? Jesus commanded that they get on the boat and go to the other side. Do you think God didn't know? Do you think Jesus didn't know the storm was coming? Jesus brought the storm. Jesus leads his disciples into the storm. That's so important. To provide them an opportunity to be shaken and then to be bolstered and built up in their faith and confidence. To provide an opportunity to teach them about his kingship and who he is and what he's doing. To, to show compassion upon them and to teach us about this. Do you think that because he has led you into the storm really this morning that he does not care? That he has forgotten you because your child is sick or because you are sick or because your dreams have come crashing down upon you. Because your family has been split apart by sin. Because whatever difficulty, trial, struggle you face that he has led you into and brought into your life as he did with Job, do you really think that he does not care? He is deeply moved by the pleas of his people. And he is deeply wanting and longing to give us a glimpse of the kingdom that is coming. He is a compassionate king. But secondly, and I, I love, this is my favorite part about the passage, uh, he is a dangerous king. 
Uh, there's a bit of comedic relief, Tim Keller points out in this passage. I never really thought about it that way, but it is quite funny if you think about it. They jump up and they uh, think about their situation first. These are professional fishermen, okay? Uh, I am no professional fisherman, but I have spent many a day on the Gulf of Mexico. And, and I remember a storm, my dad and I, by ourselves when I was a young teenager. A storm came up, and it's, it's very interesting when you're out on the water, large expanses of water. You can sort of see the black clouds, and then you can see that there's no storm on the other side. You can go around the storms, or if it doesn't look like it's that big, you can just sort of drive right through the storm. Well, so this, this storm kind of popped up, and the wind started blowing, and the seas were a little bit rough, and it really wasn't that big of a deal, and so Dad and I just decided we could see the blue just maybe a mile ahead. I mean, it was just right up on the other side of the storm, and it was clear driving out to where we were going to go fish after that. And so we decided we're just going to drive on through it and hold on tight, and we'll get to the other side, and everything will be fine. And then I remember going, we got in the midst of this, and it got really bad really fast, and we were going... 24-foot, pretty small boat, relatively speaking, up one wave and, like, down the backside of it. Waves were coming over on top, and we were getting soaking wet. I mean, it was, it was, it was worse than we would have driven through had we known. But the point, the point is this, that I'm no professional fisherman, but I've spent a lot of time in pretty rough water out on the sea. My wife, however, has not. I took her out one time this year uh, about eight or nine miles offshore on a clear day with a few waves. And about halfway there, she was terrified and ready to come home. That's that simply to say that the exposure that I have makes it a lot easier for me to not be so scared and to know what real difficulty and real trouble is. Let me ask you this. If they were professional fishermen, how adept do you think they were at discerning when it was really, really, really dangerous? They knew. They spent every day of their lives out on the Sea of Galilee fishing. And what I want you to see is that they are absolutely terrified. They think they are going to die. Look at what they say. They're not simply suggesting. They come to him and they ask him, Teacher, and, and, and they have the same question that we do in these moments. Where are you? Why, why don't you care? What do they say? Do you not care? What? Not that we're scared, but that we are perishing. That they knew that the danger was so real that they were dying. And if Jesus led them out into this storm, he, he, you know, that, that in and of itself points to their, uh, his sort of extreme danger. I mean, he is a king that is pretty dangerous. But, but, but then look what happens, this comedic relief. Then, back, back to what I'm trying to point out. He arose and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and the, there was a great calm. And then he turned to them and said, Oh, it's okay. Everything's fine now. That's all that happened. He turned to them and he said, Why are you so fearful? He rebukes them. How is it that you have no faith? And then here it is. Were they overcome with peace and joy? And oh, we are so thankful that that storm is gone. I want you to think about this. The wind is no more. Instantly, which is miraculous, the waves are no more. The rain is no more. The lightning and thunder, they are no more. And rather than be filled with peace and comfort, verse 41, and they feared exceedingly, even more than when they were perishing in the storm. Why? Because all of a sudden, they realized that this is a really powerful king. 
It reminds me, to, to try to help bring this point home, that he is, in fact, dangerous. It reminds me of uh, one of my favorite stories, the, the children's story from C.S. Lewis, the, the series, The Chronicles of Narnia, that you'll all be familiar with. Uh, it, beginning in the story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when, when the children first enter into this wintry land, Narnia, and uh, they meet these, these beavers, this couple, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they are setting out on this journey with them to go find this, this being, this one they continue to refer to, who is sort of the embodiment of everything that is good, and his name is Aslan. And the, and the children are so excited to go and meet this Aslan and find this Aslan because he's going to restore peace and order and get rid of the, the winter that has been oppressing them. And he's going to bring back the sunshine and the growth and the fruitfulness. And they're so excited. And as they head out on the journey, they begin to have a discussion. And in the midst of the discussion, they learn that he is a lion. And they are very surprised to learn that this, this being that is the embodiment of all that is good, that's going to bring about their good and their, their restoration, that he is one of the most dangerous creatures in all of the world. And they get a little bit concerned, and the littlest one, Lucy, she asks, is he safe? Is he safe? I love this. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. <laughs> Did you not hear what Miss Beaver has told you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. And then they begin to fret desperately. They, they go from jubilation to fear. They go from joy to trouble. Because all of a sudden, their hopes have been dashed. Because he's this dangerous lion. But I, I love what Mr. Beaver says. No, he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Do you see that? And that theme continues all through the series. They continue with this thing that he is not a tame lion, but he's good. Listen, he is not a tame lion. Jesus is the king of the storm, but he is a dangerous king. He has led them into this storm. But what's even worse than the storm that he brought is the power over the storm that he expressed. And when people experience this power, they should stand in awe and fall flat on their face in fear. Because of how wicked they are and how awesome he is. But listen, it's a great hope that we have, isn't it? If he wasn't so dangerous, he would be nothing for us. If, if, if Jesus could be folded up neatly and put in our pocket and taken with us, if he could be constrained in a small box, what hope would any of you have that he's going to crush evil and finally defeat all that is oppressing you and bring about restoration and joy and peace and calm every storm and still every sea and stop every wind? What hope would you have in that unless he was so dangerous? Right. See, it is what we fear in Christ that brings us the greatest hope. And it is this reality that he is the king. So do you see this dichotomy that in the story it very quickly and abruptly goes from a teaching that he is human and compassionate and deeply moved by his people to the king of kings and lord of lords who is to be feared and awed and is in control of everything. He gives them this glimpse into the kingdom first. What it's going to be like. And then he gives them a glimpse of the king. And it is a very small glimpse. And they can barely handle what they see. So he's a compassionate king. He is a dangerous king. And then finally, and very briefly, he is a sovereign king. And I mean by that, that, that word is used in many different capacities. But let me give you some, 
uh, let me give you some words that are similar to, to give you a hint of what I mean. That in his kingship, he is supreme, absolute, unlimited, unrestricted, boundless, ultimate, total, unconditionally, he is the king. He is sovereign king over everything. He is the king over the storm. He is the king over the people in the storm. He is the king over the clouds that bring the storm. He is the king of all of creation. Psalm 24, for the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. It is that awesomeness of God that they feared. And it is that same awesomeness, his sovereignty, his might, his power, his rule, his supremacy and absolute unlimitedness that brings us the greatest hope and joy. Listen, in this storm, how does he deal with the weather? You want want to know just how sovereign a king he is? He rebukes the weather like you rebuke a child. I love what some have pointed out about this, that he does not roll up his sleeves and get out his wand and stand back and conjure. I mean, right? He doesn't say, oh, whoa, whoa, this is a problem. Whip out his wand like Harry Potter and start calling on a greater power. He does not conjure the power to do this. He is the power to do it. And he simply says, hush, storm, shut your mouth. Do not speak unless spoken to. And immediately the storm stops. And for those of us who live in a hurricane-ridden land, one thing that you know is that even when the wind and the wave, when the wind and the storm stops, the waves continue for days. But what I want you to see is in this passage, with the word of his mouth, he speaks and rebukes the storm like you rebuke a small child who is out of line and doing what they're not supposed to be doing. Shut up, storm. And immediately, not only the wind and the rain, but the, the, the waves and the sea are flat as glass. Do, do you see the sovereignty? And, and so they're forced in this passage to stand back and say, who is this? Who are we on the boat with that even the wind and the waves listen The idea there is that even the wind and waves must listen. One of the greatest forces of nature, one of the most destructive forces that we know, that even it must bend its knee to simply the spoken rebuke of this guy. He is the sovereign king, and let me tell you something. Unlike many may tell you, and listen to me very carefully, the point of this passage and the point of this story and the point of understanding the compassion and danger and sovereignty of King Jesus is not to tell you that Jesus will calm all of the storms in your life. I mean, I I used to say when I taught about this passage that I wish I could tell you that this morning, but I don't. I've decided that I no longer wish that because the message of this passage is far greater than that. So so I'm content to give you what, what I think the point of this passage is. Let me tell you something. Not only does this passage, is it not here to tell you that he will calm all of the storms in your life, He won't. The Bible tells us clearly that he will not calm the storms of your life. Necessarily. Some he may, many he won't. It teaches us that as Jesus walked the the wobbly road of suffering that ultimately led to glory, so too will our path to glory be paved with the bricks of suffering. It just will. That as they hated our master, so they will hate us. And that he uses the storms of life to sift us. He puts us on the boat and he drives us, so to speak, out into the midst of the storm. And he makes the hurricane rage so that we will be sifted into those that are 
false and really do not trust him and really do not believe him and to those that really love him and trust him and believe in him. Listen to the question that the disciples asked him, the same question that we also have. They came to him and they said, Teacher, if you really loved us, you would not let this happen to us. And isn't that the question that we ask so often in our hearts? If you really loved us, then you would not let this happen to us. And Jesus turns to them and in, in effect is saying, you do not have the right to distrust me. Remember one of the sermons that we preached just a few weeks ago, he's teaching about himself, that Jesus is a king that can be trusted. They come to him as we do and they say, Jesus, if you loved us, then you would not let this happen to us. And Jesus in return looks at us and says, if you really loved me, then you would trust me. It's the wrong question. He is not going to calm all the storms in your life. He is not going to still all of the seas in your life, at least today. At least today. The point of this story is not that the sea will be calmed, but that we are safe in the storm. Do you see the difference? That even before Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, they were just as safe with Jesus on the boat. That's the point of the story. Not that they were on the boat with the one that would stop the storm, but that they were on the boat with the one who could stop the storm. And the one who has promised, listen, a day when all of the storms of our life will be silenced. There is indeed coming a day, friends, when this compassionate and dangerous and sovereign king will return with his scepter and will bring his crown and will ascend his throne and he will bring complete peace to his kingdom. He will still every wind. He will calm every sea. He will silence every thunderclap. He will bring peace to our weary souls. Let us trust that he has not forgotten or forsaken us. And let us say with John Newton, Begone unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer let me wrestle, and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you have given us a compassionate and a dangerous and a sovereign king to rule our hearts and our lives, who expresses providence over every single thing that happens to us. And my prayer is simply this morning that we would learn from the truth of this passage that as long as you are in the boat with us, we are safe. Lord, may we cast our cares upon you and pray that you would be with us, that you would change our circumstance, that you would heal and that you would restore. But God, when your answer is no, help us to believe and to trust as wholeheartedly as we ever did, that you know what you're doing and you're more capable of protecting us than we could ever be of ourselves.
Thank you that you sent Jesus to become a man to redeem men. And thank you for the safety and security that we find in him. Lord, forgive our unbelief today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.